Welcome to the next installment of the Colorado Child Abuse and Neglect Attorney podcast series. You can follow our series at soundcloud.com slash Colorado Attorney Training. My name is Charmaine Britton, and I'm your host for this series. Today, we will talk about collaborative decision-making between child welfare and judicial partners. When families become involved in the child welfare and judicial systems, those systems must work together to achieve better outcomes of child safety, permanency, and well-being. But it's hard! Today, we'll talk about how to get to true collaborative decision-making. My guests today are Susan Morris, Referral and Assessment Specialist at Colorado Department of Human Services, Aaron Strumming, Deputy Division Director of Child Welfare and Adult Services at Denver County Department of Human Services, and Jennifer Stewart, Senior County Attorney in Larimer County. Welcome. Let's go ahead and get started. What is collaborative decision-making between county attorneys and child welfare staff? Jennifer, can we start with you? Yes, so when I think of collaborative uh, decision-making or working together with the caseworker and the county attorney's office, really we want to have the same goal. So our goal is we want to be moving in the same direction with the same enough communication that both of us are aware of where we're going and how we're going to get there. And so that, so I like to think of it as like a canoe. So if there were two people in a canoe and you were going uh, and you were just relying on each other, there's one person who's providing a lot of strength um, and there's one person who's providing a lot of direction, but they both need to be a part of that team in order to move in that direction up the river. Um, and so it's just moving together Erin, do you have anything to add to that? I also think it's an opportunity for us to really heighten our expertise and come together and be a team to really solve problems. So it's different perspectives of a problem and I always find that that's very valuable in team decision making. Looking at all the different perspectives based on your lens, based on your expertise and really coming together to solve a problem and I also agree. it's very important to be on the same page, especially when we're forward-facing with other partners outside of the agency. Um, it's imperative to our reputation that we show up professionally, and if we're not agreeing, we need to figure that out before we show everybody else that disagreement. Good point. Susan, do you have anything to add about why collaborative decision-making is important? It's important in considering um, aspects of decisions and having, I think it's really important in having varying stakeholders with kind of different hands in the cookie jar, if you will, having different perspectives, um, which definitely maximizes the services and the support that we're giving to our families. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a real power in having different people at the table mm -hmm. and collaborating on that decision making. So that's the ideal. Why is this an issue? Why is collaborative decision making not happening the way it should be? Jennifer? Well, there's all sorts of reasons why collaborative decision making may or may not be happening as it's supposed to. 
when you deal with people and our job is entirely dealing with people. There are personality clashes, there are just differences of opinions, there are uh, whether there's a respect for the other person's um, input or not. So there's, there's a whole wide variety of why that collaborative decision-making may be um, impaired for a reason. So it's, it's, it's also one of those things that you have to be aware of. So sometimes you may not spend enough time with the person to realize that there is a lack of that collaborative decision-making unless somebody points it out or unless you're starting to feel like this is I'm always hitting my head against a wall why um, you know what is it about this this uh, either this relationship or this particular case what is it that we're working on that we don't seem to be moving in that smooth capacity that is is possible um, and a lot of that takes the ability to take a step back and and be aware of what you bring to the table versus what the other person brings. So it can't always be it's this person's fault. You have to be aware of what you're also bringing. But in this field, that's really hard. We move fast paced with a lot of cases and there's a lot of trauma that goes in and out of it, both for the families that we deal with and the secondary or vicarious trauma that we are also bringing to the table. And so there's all sorts of reasons why that may or may not work, but it is important to be aware, um, and I think that that's probably the biggest part. Step one, awareness. Erin, mm -hmm. do you have anything to add to that? I do. I, I, I feel like when collaboration isn't working, the primary reason is we don't have positive relationships based on, you know, it could be we're not in the same building, we don't know each other, or we definitely just ha have not had the opportunity to get to know our partners. I also think that communication style sometimes is a barrier and also just lack of understanding of where that person is coming from. And if both parties are not able to explain why they're worried or what their issue is, um, it's, it's really difficult to have collaboration because no one's really talking about it. Right. Right. So do you all have maybe any examples of positive or perhaps negative experiences with collaborative decision making that could really illustrate these points? I don't know. I want to say probably six or seven years ago now where the Department of Human Services had custody of a teenager. Um, he had um, been adopted, um, so been previously through the system and been adopted, and then his adopted parents, it's what we call a failed adoption, so he was returned to the Department of Human Services. And the caseworkers had found uh, the birth father, and um, he had completely turned his life around. But at that time, we didn't have any part of the statute that would allow us to reverse a termination of parental rights and so it was how do we help this father and son reconnect and how do we do that safely part of the issue was that the father was in another state um, and really wasn't going to be approved through an interstate compact for the placement of children so the other state would have needed to approve him but he had a long history but he had turned his life around for the past um, 10 years he had been 
uh, what we like to call a model citizen and had really demonstrated that. So the Department of Human Services believed that he was safe and we were able to hold a number of meetings uh, in which they invited me to be a part of that. And we were able to go, okay, how do we creatively work around the interstate compact for the placement of the children? And we um, invited the father to stay in Colorado for three months. He had gotten permission to take leave from his work, from his job, and he was able to stay. We put him in a short-term apartment and were able to reconnect them there and then close our case and send him off safely. And that was a great way to try and collaboratively think about how do we solve this problem so that this father and son can be reunited despite all of the barriers, both legally and within the rules and policies of the Department of Human Services, and it had a very successful outcome. Mm -hmm. But it does take a lot of work and a lot of meetings and, and knowing what your goal is. And that was really, was really neat to watch. Going back to what Erin said about what makes a difference, it sounds like relationship mm -hmm. and trust and rapport building is what made a difference in that situation. Absolutely. And there was a lot of um, time and effort put into it. I don't know that for a lot of our cases we had that amount of time. But when you have a child that you're looking for permanency and there just aren't other options and, and you're really worried about it, it's, it's time to go look and go look again and to spend that time and take that time. And, and um, so it wasn't just the relationships, but I think a lot of time and effort put into it. And a lot of everybody believing that this was going to work and, and not allowing anything that came in our path to stand in our way. And it was good. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, anybody else want to add anything? Erin? I have another positive experience that I wanted to share where it was a, a moment in, in my career as a caseworker when it changed the, uh, my view of the county attorneys and their role. And it was um, a situation where I had a, a young man who had some developmental disabilities and was placed in foster care outside of the metro area. And they, he was placed in a school district that was really struggling to meet his needs. In fact, they had decided that they were not going to meet his educational needs, even though that was a violation of his rights and it was, you know, it was against the law. So I really partnered with my city attorney to solve that problem. And so through that, like she went to the monthly meetings with me. She, so it was outside of the courtroom. It was in a school district. We were meeting monthly. She was going down with me to the, this school district. And we really worked together to basically advocate for this kid and get him his educational rights. And that was the moment where it's, it's more than just representing me in the, the courtroom. That was the moment where it's like I can utilize them and their expertise in a lot other arenas besides just the courtroom. So it sounds like <coughs> collaborative decision making is not something that happens in a courtroom, but it's something that happens outside the courtroom. Would that be accurate? I think it's both. So I, I, not to say that collaborative decision-making doesn't happen outside the courtroom, but you have to have those relationships already formed before you go into the courtroom. Gotcha. Um, and so when you're in the courtroom, there there's just too much 
pomp and circumstance, I think I'll call it, for those relationships to be formed or cemented, you already have to have that trust. And already have to have that relationship if you are mm -hmm. expecting a good outcome to happen in that day of trial. And so that relationship needs to already have been formed, but it still occurs in the courtroom. And so there are all sorts of unexpected events that happen mm -hmm. in the courtroom. Somebody says something that you're not expecting, or a witness doesn't appear, or a whole bunch of things can happen you know, in the course of a day. And you have to be able to have trust in each other that you're going to be able to still present the information and the puzzle to the court that you want to still tell that story. I just would add that if you're not speaking to your attorney before you go into that courtroom and letting them know what you're worried about and worried about with the family, that when you're in the courtroom, it's really hard for the county attorney or city attorney, in, in my case, to really advocate for you as well. It's not just advocating for the family, but in the courtroom there are things that come up and sometimes the, the caseworker representing the, the agency, um, the child welfare agency, really, because they're sometimes fighting for, you know, that they're advocating for their clients, the parents, and sometimes they're trying to blame the caseworker, and it's really uncomfortable, and caseworkers are not attorneys, so they're not used to some of the badgering that might happen. So if you're having that relationship outside, that when you walk into the courtroom, you feel more supported if you at least, one, communicate with that attorney beforehand so you really tell them what you're worried about so they represent you in a way that they're saying stuff to the court that it's like, yeah, that's what I mean, right? Um, because that's very frustrating and that can actually damage the relationship if they're representing something that that's not what you think about what's moving forward with the case. So. That's when it doesn't work, is when you're not, when you as a caseworker or you as the attorney are not engaging before you go into that courtroom, it's really hard to respect the whole process. Um, and I know that uh, there may be tools that can facilitate decision making. Susan, could you talk about some of the tools? Yeah, we've had heard a lot of discussion around family engagement and the importance of engaging families truly from the beginning and developing that rapport and that trust. And one of the main ways that our caseworkers do that is through the completion of our safety assessment tool. Again, this is a tool that is required of all caseworkers to be completing on all of our PA5 and PA4. PA5 meaning our um, child protection service assessments and our um, PA4, which are our youth and conflict assessments. And they're required to complete the safety assessment with all families really upfront at that initial visit. It truly is meant to be a tool that engages families through conversation and transparency about why we are showing up at their door. Having those vulnerable conversations and those hard conversations about what those safety concerns are, explaining what the safety tool does, and really the tool is meant to engage families in open and transparent dialogue about those safety concerns identifying stressors that exacerbate those specific concerns. And then it takes it further and really doing a deep dive into what are the caregiver's strengths and protective capacities, caregiver functioning, 
child functioning and um, child vulnerability. So it's, a, again, an opportunity to really have thoughtful and um, thorough conversations with families, and we hope that in that process it's really developing um, some trust in a really scary situation. Now, do most county attorneys understand these tools and what's in them? Well, I will let the attorney in the room speak, but from my experience, <laughs> what we are finding is that no, that this is really an area of opportunity um, at the state level, even um, through county departments, to begin having more conversations to train them on the, the use of the tool and how we are using the tools to make decisions. Initially, we are using it to make those safety decisions up front to make sure children are safe, but really it does drive our involvement with the family and the decisions that we are making down the road. So we have started having these conversations. Counties are actually requesting that we at the state level come and have these conversations. So there have been efforts being made to train attorneys even uh, judicial partners, judges, CASAs, um, whomever really the counties identify as needing to be at the table. So they're starting to, to have the conversations, but definitely there's an opportunity in this area for growth. So That's, that's a great way of saying it, an opportunity for growth. Uh, Jennifer, what's your perspective, having, I know, been at the county for 12 years? So the, the tool of the safety assessment provides a path for the caseworker to assist in decision making of whether this is a child, instead of a gut instinct, a child that's truly in need of safety parameters and what then those safety parameters are to keep this child safe. So what safety plan is designed or what efforts are made by the Department of Human Services to resolve those safety concerns and whether those then can be followed through with by the family. So what we've done is we've used the safety plans within court, but we haven't taken the safety assessment tool until recently. And I've seen more county attorneys across the state starting to use the safety assessment tool in their conversations with the caseworker about, okay, so tell me when you went in with that family, what were the initial safety concerns that you marked down on that assessment? And how did you then address them through your safety plan to work on those uh, safety parameters for this child or children? And then that conversation then just kind of flows from there because you're able to, the caseworker knows how to answer those questions. So instead of surprising them, saying, tell me about your process, um, if you direct them in the process that they used, in working with the family, they feel a lot more comfortable and confident in their answers. I know this, I did this assessment, and you're right, I based my safety plan based on what was identified in the safety um, assessment. And so it just, it has a much better flow because it's something they've been trained on and now I understand the language. So I think for a long time we weren't talking the same language. and. Um, when we can talk about the tools that the Department of Human Services uses, then we can have a, an understanding of the same language and, and use the same language. I think what you have just articulated is how those tools can really facilitate that collaborative decision making. But let's back up. 
Let's spend just a moment talking about the definitions of safety and risk. Susan, could you please provide a definition of safety versus risk? Because I think that's something that often gets confused in child welfare. Yeah. So when we're talking about safety, we're talking about the actions of protection taken by a parent caregiver that might mitigate the, the danger and it's demonstrated over a period of time. When we're talking about risk, we are talking about what are the worries or concerns and what could happen in the future. So it's basically the risk level indicates the likelihood of future maltreatment. And the safety assessment really helps to balance that. So we're identifying what the safety and risk concerns are, but then it balances it with the, the strengths of the family to, to mitigate the concerns. Erin, do you have anything to add to this? I think to go back to what you originally said, like a lot of people confuse what safety <clears throat> and what the risk is. So substance abuse is a really good example to use, right? It's the substance abuse itself like isn't great, but we have to really use the safety assessment to really figure out what the impact of the parent's use is. Are we more worried about their use having potential harm down the road, right? Or is it, is their use right now, today, impacting that child? And I think that tool actually helps us figure out, is this happening like right now? Is there actual negative impact? Or are we worried that if parent relapses or parent doesn't arrange a sober caregiver for that child, is there going to be danger in the future? So that tool, the safety assessment tool, actually helps us really figure that out and how do we partner with the family to kind of create safety so that we can eliminate some of those risk factors. So that would be creating a <coughs> safety plan. I've also heard the mm -hmm. use of the term support plan. What are the differences between a safety and a support plan, or are there? A safety plan can look at the same as a support plan. The biggest difference is, is that the caseworker used the actual safety assessment. They have found that there is actually current safety concerns. So we engage with the family to create a safety plan, as well as we are responsible to being a part of monitoring to ensure that whatever the family and the, the agency has developed is actually happening and that safety for the child is occurring. A support plan, there may not actually be an actual yes on the safety assessment, but we're still worried and we still want to create that same plan. But oftentimes it's the family that's really making sure that that support plan happens and that support plan can happen and be in place even after the department is out of that family's life. So like an example, we had a family where both parents were actively using meth and um, they had a newborn, but they had a lot of family support. We had a paternal grandmother that said, I will be the caretaker. I will be that sober caregiver for that newborn that will be able to meet all their basic needs. And my, my son is going to be living with me and he is currently in treatment 
and then we had a very detailed, that's the other thing, they both support and safety have to be very detailed. Like who's going to do what, what is the action, and in this case, if the father did relapse, the family had a whole bunch of tasks that they were going to do to ensure that it didn't impact the child. And so he did relapse and the family followed everything that was in that support plan. Therefore, we, we as a county felt like we didn't have to open a case because the family was really using that guide and that support plan to ensure that they were creating safety for that child. So the family took care of the situation. Where with the safety plan, we probably have a little more concern. We may be we may be opening, we may not. Safety plans are usually also limited in time. It's really until hopefully the safety situation has been uh, mitigated. And if it doesn't, that's when we make the decision of probably opening a case, if we haven't already. So I like to think of safety plans as what we do initially, and mm -hmm. support plans are what we do for transitions. So if we're transitioning out of the safety plan and how to build community around moving out of the safety plan and into a different mm -hmm. arena with now family and community supports to help. Or if you're transi transitioning a child back home mm -hmm. after not being in the home for a while, you know, what can assist in that process? Who's going to be there to make sure that that transition happens smoothly? Or when we're in the Department of Human Services is taking a step out. So when we're having a transition, it's really just good to put in a support plan so everybody knows what direction we're going. So we're including then our partners and moving through um, in the direction we all want to go, which is the state not to be a part of their family anymore and the safety, the child to be safe. So we're collaborating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There we go. So I think the Family First Prevention Services Act that's coming down will also try and, and create more of that collaboration between the Department of Human Services and families that, and the ability to probably provide families more services without having to go through the court system. And so I think it not only will impact um, in the way that the Department of Human Services functions and is able to provide services to the families, but it will hopefully keep children out of that court process. And so a lot of cases get filed when children need to be, when orders need to be made in order to keep that child safe. And if we can create safety plans and support plans and and then have the ability to have funding to provide those services to keep children with those people, you don't need to go to the court system. And, and so it's really trying to be as least intrusive in the family's life as possible while also keeping the family safe. Let's talk a little bit about the barriers to collaborative decision making. What are some of those barriers? Well, I think we talked about it a little bit um, before with that lack of trust. I like to uh, think of um, our relationship in that the Department of Human Services goes out and collects the puzzle pieces that the county attorney's office needs in order to present the, the story to the court. Um, so in order to present their, so they go out and they interview neighbors and they interview family and they interview or work with systems and um, schools that work across the community in order to try and keep this child safe and if it's not possible then they need to bring it to the to the court system in order to get again get those orders when a caseworker has only got some of the puzzle pieces 
and hasn't been able to collect it, the entire part that the, the county attorney's office needs. I think there's then a responsibility on the county attorney's office to help direct the caseworkers to what else is needed. So if we have some pieces of this puzzle but not every piece to be able to meet the definitions or the um, what the court is expecting, um, then we send the caseworker mm -hmm. back out. But that is upon the, case, the county attorney in order to have that return collaboration back with the Department of Human Services. So it isn't just a, no, you don't have it, don't have enough in order to meet this standard that we have in the court process. And so there has to be this open dialogue, and if there isn't, then that's probably the number one barrier. I would also add that sometimes just general workload, right, sometimes is a barrier of collaboration. We all have a lot of cases that we're working on, and, and it's also a very fast-paced, and sometimes we have to make quick decisions, and sometimes we don't have the full picture and still have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So that, the workload, slowing down, building relationship is imperative. And if we don't have that, that is going to be a barrier of the collaborative decision-making. As well as we talked about earlier, if we don't have the same concept or definition of safety and risk, that also sometimes can be a barrier. It causes a roadblock in solving and trying to look at this puzzle, right, and figuring out what, what do we need to know. If, if someone is very based on I'm worried about what's going to happen in six months where someone else is, I'm worried about today, and you're not on the same page, that could definitely be a barrier to collaboration. One of the things that I've heard, <coughs> my apologies, Jennifer, but sometimes I've heard that caseworkers may not think that county attorneys are all that approachable. How could we change that perception? What needs to happen in a county attorney office? You mean there are people who don't like attorneys? I mean, I've never heard that before. I think we have uh, the, the sheer amount of jokes that are made about attorneys give off the impression that we're not very approachable, we're not very well liked in the community. So I don't find that comment surprising. <laughs> um, but in, in approaching the county attorney's office, every attorney knows that their job is not to be the judge. Their job is to engage with their client um, and be able to assist the client in moving through the legal process. If, that, uh, if the attorney is doing their job, they are then responsible in part for that communication and taking that time. Um, I do think there are a lot of attorneys that have very strong opinions. Uh, most uh, people who go into the legal profession are opinionated and uh, don't mind sharing their opinions, which is why they went into the legal profession in the first place. <laughs> and so sometimes it's hard for caseworkers to hear some of the um, opinions of the county attorney's office and that then um, stymies that relationship if it's if it's hard to hear that opinion. So both the county attorney needs to be aware of the message that they're sending and the body language that they're giving off and, and whether they are making time for the caseworker and to be aware of how they're interacting with their client. The other 
point in that, though, is that um, caseworkers also need to be aware that the county attorney is trying to do the best job that they can in protecting the client and trying to ask sometimes those hard questions out of the uh, presence of other ears so that that conversation can be had. Um, and so the conversations you have with your attorneys are not usually very comfortable either. So the whole process around attorneys is you're getting an opinionated person and you're talking about difficult things. And so in order to engage with the county attorneys, you need to come in with a, okay, how do I um, help this person help me? And uh, that will also help you move through this process pretty well. But county attorneys definitely need to be aware of, how, of what impression they're giving and the fact that we're routinely biled in the first place. <laughs> Fair enough. Erin or Susan, do you have anything to add to that from the child welfare perspective? I, I think I am fortunate. Denver County has a great relationship with our city attorneys and we don't always agree. Absolutely not. But I do feel like our county attorneys allow for a difference of opinion and to have that conversation and because we, ha we have really worked hard in the last couple years to develop relationships and really identify our roles and whose responsibility it is to do this and do this, right? Um, and being very clear about that, because we weren't always very good at that. The roles were kind of blurring a little bit at one point. And so because now we have identified whose role it is to make this decision and what is the role of the attorney within the life of this child welfare case, we've been able to go in and have conversations and hear the opinions and know that they're coming from a place of helping to protect us as their client, that it's not, it doesn't become so offensive. It's like, okay, I get where you're going, but I really want to try this kind of risky thing. Can we do it? And can you support us to do it? And we have found that because we understand each other's roles more, we're able to do that. We're able to do a lot of creative things with our families and it doesn't feel as scary. That's great. So when you collaborate, you can be creative yes. and achieve better outcomes for children and families. Ultimately, like the, our, all of our goals, that's the other thing, is that if we, being very clear that we all have the same goal as well, is to ensure that children are safe, ensure that children have family, and that they have some permanency and that they are well taken care of, right? We all go into this, especially attorneys and social workers. We could do we could do a lot of things, but we choose to do child welfare. And when we remember that we have the same goal, we definitely can come to the table and be more collaborative and ultimately that's what's best for our families and children. That was the mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> it is beautiful when it works. It is. Mm, that's great. Thank you so much to our panel for this important discussion. To Jennifer and Aaron and Susan, that was a great dialogue about how to engage in collaborative decision making. And our guests noted some really important points. We must learn each other's languages. 
That means understanding the distinctions between safety and risk and the child welfare tools that can help guide that conversation and the judicial process. It starts with an awareness of what we bring to the table. We must build relationships to facilitate that collaborative decision making. Our guests talked about how to make that happen and it all comes down to communication and building trust and rapport. Follow this series at soundcloud.com slash Colorado Attorney Training or subscribe for free on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next podcast in our series. Thank you.